0: Now when Pastor Donald Barnhouse, he's in a famous church in America, when Pastor Donald Barnhouse was a very young man, so he was a very young pastor, a woman comes to Pastor Donald Barnhouse about a crime that's been hanging over her for 40 years. By this time, the woman is now 60. But when she was very young, she was sexually abused by a boarder staying at her parents' home. And this woman becomes so outraged by what has happened to her, she creeps into the boarder's room the next night and turns on the gas jet. She is upset, really upset. The next day the police come to investigate the boarder's death. The police rule that the death is an accident and that the wind has blown the gas flame out, that it wasn't really anybody else. The wind got blamed for the accident. Nobody knows all those years what the woman has done. She carries the burden of this sin around with her for 40 years. That takes me to my first main point, which is a question today. My first main point, who justifies the sinner? What would a pastor say to a woman in trouble like that after 40 years of guilt? She's come. She can't help herself. She's got to tell somebody else. What would he say? Who justifies the sinner? Well, you could help her in lots of ways. This is one of the best ways is to go to the book of Romans and chapter 4 and verse 5. However, to the man, chapter 4 and verse 5, however, to the man or the person who does not, who does not, um, does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness now in my years as a full time pastor I was a full time pastor for some 20 years and part time pastor for many years after that I've never had anybody tell me about a murder just like that but at the pastor and you're preaching from the pulpit people get upset about their sin and they seek out the pastor and they want to talk about what has happened in their lives and they want help, they think they might be able to get help so they come to somebody to talk to there are all kinds of wicked acts that people confess to. Lies. Theft. Some people lie to chance to spoil another man's chance of becoming promoted or something like that. Women do the same thing. Others contribute to the death of somebody else by neglect when they're driving so that the accident really isn't an accident. Somebody wasn't careful enough in the first place. Or somebody was breaking the rules, the road rules, in the first place. Many people are haunted by wicked acts of dishonesty in business. They just cook the books a little bit here and there. And of course I've had women come to me about abortion. Sometimes multiple abortion. And they're very upset by this. The doctor has told them, and told them wrongly, that this is a surgical procedure. But they know in their hearts and they know especially afterwards that they've done something very, very wrong. That they've taken the life of a child. How do we help such people? How would you help such a person? Counselors often try to reassure by pointing out the circumstances to help the sinner to forgive herself or himself. So they say, oh, there were circumstances weren't there. And that's why you did what you did. But the only forgiveness that is of any lasting value is God's forgiveness. People need to know how their guilt can be removed, how they can be a different person, how things can be changed. And you have the explanation of two major Bible characters right before you in Romans chapter 4. The first one is Abraham. When a man works, verse 4, his wages are credited to him as a gift, not as a gift. They are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation, however, verse 5, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked. His or her faith is credited as righteousness. You are no longer condemned when you trust God. This God, that's the answer to my question, it is God who puts people in the right and shows people true forgiveness. Not only are their sins all cleansed away and moved as far as the east is from the west and all blotted out, but millions of righteousness are put in their account through Jesus. That's what you're no longer condemned, but you have all this righteousness in your account. Abraham is a key case. Abraham was not put in the right with God by a little ritual that Jill has just read to you. It wasn't through a little ritual. The little ritual came afterwards. It wasn't the ritual at all that God required of Abraham. It came afterwards. Abraham standing before God, if it was to do with a little ritual, would have been a works religion. A religion whereby you do certain things and then God repays you with forgiveness and a right standing with himself. But it wasn't like that with Abraham. God's relationship with Abraham is in terms that have nothing to do with works. Chapter 4 and verse 4. Now when a man works, his wages are credited to him and not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation if you work you get paid but that's not what happened with Abraham did you see that key word what's the key word there? it's gift it was something given to Abraham Abraham this key character in your Bible Abraham is held in the highest esteem throughout the Bible and what's he called? He's called the friend of God. The friend of God, Isaiah 41. And 2 Chronicles 20. And even in your New Testament, James 2 verse 23. James 2 verse 23. Abraham is called the friend of God. Obviously he trusts God and knows God and God knows him and trusts him. How is it that Abraham has this friendship with God? It is only because God himself credits Abraham with a right standing with his judge, with God himself. God fixes things up for Abraham. That word justify has to do with a legal or forensic declaration. God makes a legal declaration about Abraham. You're forgiven. You're mine. You're my friend. It's all to do with a gift. Nothing to do with repayment for something that Abraham has done. Then you have another key Bible character. Another key Bible character is David. We have the case of David. David is not simply the greatest of the kings in the Bible. He's that all-rounder, great at everything. You know, the cricketer that can bowl well and can field well, can bat well, and if there's nobody there to be behind the wickets, he's the greatest wicket-keeper in the team. He can do everything so well. David is like this. David is the musician. He represents all artistic people since then, since David lived. David is the soldier. He represents all the armed forces since then. Nobody else can take on Goliath like David can. You watch him and read about him in the Bible. There's nobody like the armed forces. Nobody since then has come up near David. But David is a shepherd boy representing the working classes. He knows what it is to be out in the middle of the night having to work hard even from his boyhood. He represents the working classes too. But David is the king, a great king, and he regulates policies like nobody else. The borders just keep extending all the time. He's king over Israel. And David is in some ways a priest. Because when he's writing in one of the songs that he writes in Psalm 51, he says, what does God really require? Is it animals that God really requires? No, it's a broken heart, that you're broken because of your sin and you come back to God and say, my heart is broken, I really am sorry for what I've done. It's like a priest, he's showing us the best way to approach God. And David is is the prophet like nobody else. And why is that? Because he's a poet as well as a prophet. It's supreme. It's there in front of you in verse 7 and 8. You say, that doesn't look like poetry it's a different kind of poetry from our poetry. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner. It's not like that rhyming. It's the beauty of the words, but even more than that, there's all kinds of devices that we don't use much in our poetry. There's a rhyming of ideas. Look carefully in verse 7. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. You've got transgressions rhyming with sins. It's a rhyming of ideas. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. The idea of forgiveness rhymes with the idea of having your sins covered. He's the supreme poet of the Bible. You go to a funeral and nearly always somebody reads one of his wonderful songs. Or they sing his songs. They're put to music. He's an amazing poet. Here is this man, and so Paul brings him alongside. his head. Abraham come, and now he pulls David alongside himself to represent what it is to be in the right with God. He takes these two key characters. David knows that his transgressions are forgiven and his sins are covered. This is what can be said to anyone who is conscious of guilt. I don't care who it is in this building this morning. And God sees you and he knows you. And this is what can be said to a woman who's had guilt for 40 years. And she's carried that round with her all those years. What can be said to her? That her sins can be covered and that her transgressions can be forgiven and she doesn't need to focus on the circumstances any longer. She focuses on whom? She focuses on God. That's the only thing that really matters. That is the forgiveness that matters. David is responsible himself for the adultery of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. But David also knows the blessed standing before God of having his sin completely forgiven and completely covered. I ask this morning as I go no further, where are you today? Are you forgiven like that poet and King David? Are you forgiven? Are you like Abraham, a friend of God? Do you know that God who justifies the wicked, who puts you in the millions of righteousness and blots out every every sin of yours? Or do you still carry a burden of guilt, like that woman who gasses the border, border in her parents' home? My second main point is another question. How does God justify the wicked? Well, in this chapter, Paul keeps coming back to the case of Abraham. Abraham is promised that he is to be the father of many nations. How many Christians since Abraham? People have calculated only two billion. How many Christians since Abraham? Only two billion. The father of many nations. Not just with his body physically so many Christians, as a friend of God, there are so many other friends that have come since Abraham became a friend of God. As Isaiah says, He was but one when God called him, but God made him many. Abraham believed the promise. He trusted God, that he would become the father of many nations. How could it have happened? He was nearly a hundred years old, and Sarah had never had a baby and she was in her 90s. He faced the facts. That his body was as good as dead, as the passage says, and that Sarah could no longer have children. What is faith? What is it to trust God? It's not something silly. And it's not something irrational, where you leave your brain somewhere else and away you go and trust God. That's not how you trust. I'm trusting this microphone is working this morning what do I do? I try it and I see if people are listening my voice is fairly weak I see if it's happening I'm a school teacher I expect everybody to be listening I don't leave my brain somewhere when you trust somebody we had it during the week Zach might even remember when you trust somebody what happens? if mummy's driving the car what do you do? oh mummy you need to do this, mummy you need to do mummy look out, mummy, mummy, all the time, that's not trusting mummy as she's driving the car, that's what's called backseat driving, we don't do that, once we know mummy is a good driver and we've been with him, have been with her a few times and she's not always putting on the brakes at the wrong time and having to pull over and the police are getting her all the, we trust mummy, she's a good driver. Abraham believes in a living God who does impossible things, wonderful things. And that's not because he is a victim of credulity or superstition. Why not? Well, there's nobody like God. Nobody more powerful than God. And you can know that this morning. How can you know? Well, just look at your hand for a minute and see all the wonderful things that you can do with your hand. Just think about your ear for a minute and how complicated it all is. It's amazing. All the parts of your body are quite amazing. There's a couple of parts that are a little bit redundant, but everything else, they all function so well together. The bloodstream is so complicated. Think about it. You don't have to go far to see how powerful and amazing God is. Wander in the bush. Go for a drive and see the fields and the mountains and the valleys. Go to the beach and listen to the ocean. Look up at the sun and the clouds and the sky. Go out at night and watch the moon and the stars. Job 26 verse 7, God is a God, Job 26 verse 7, who suspends the earth over nothing. When you're looking at creation, remember God's providence. And what's that? It's just the prolonging of the act of creation. The same power that made all things maintains all things. We all know that the world runs according to laws. But is there any power in a law? In the way things run? That's only a pattern. There's no power in a pattern. Natural laws are just a summary of God's usual way of working. The usual way of working was that God gave babies to people who were younger. But Abraham had to trust to God, because God said he would look after Abraham, that people who are older could have a child. He had to trust God for that. There's nobody more powerful than God. There's nobody more trustworthy than God. Abraham knew what it was to trust God. And we are more privileged than Abraham. We're in a different position from Abraham. Abraham, Jesus says, look forward to seeing Jesus' day. And he was glad, Jesus says it in John chapter 8. But we can look back and see what Jesus has done and trust God even more easily than Abraham because we live after the death and the resurrection of Jesus when God disclosed himself how trustworthy, how amazingly trustworthy God really is. Nothing is too hard for this God. Abraham honoured God, verse 19 and 20. Without weakening in his faith, he, that is Abraham, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Abraham allowed God to be God by trusting God to be true to himself. So Abraham thought about his own predicament, his age, Sarah's barrenness, but he didn't turn a blind eye to these problems, nor did he underestimate these problems. Abraham reminded himself of God's power and trustworthiness. Abraham knew that God could keep his promise because of his power, and Abraham knew that God would keep his promise because of his trustworthiness. God is a faithful God and fulfills his promise. Abraham looked at the issues before him from God's standpoint. And for any unbeliever, any non-Christian here today, when you trust yourself to what's happened at the cross of Jesus, God sees you not as a person that you were, but as a person with sins, habits, all broken. Broken down before him, he sees you as fully forgiven. God sees the truth of things. Where does the sinner start today? Well, you hold on to the trustworthiness of God. Yet that's not the main thing. What is the main thing? If you're climbing a mountain and you've got a rope there, what are you thinking about all the time? How good your grip is? No. It's what that rope is tied to that really matters. It does. It is important how good your grip is. But the main thing is not that. It's what you're holding on to. The rope and where the rope is fixed. And that's the main thing this morning for every person, but especially for somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. You hold on to a great God who is completely trustworthy and has all the power of the whole world in his hands. God is a great God. Don't think too much about your faith. Think primarily about God and his promises. How are you justified? You're justified through faith, through holding on. But how does that really happen? You get to know a living God, a great God, a God of great power and he's given you a book with all the details and he himself will help you understand the book. My last main point this morning, why? Why, Why does God do this? Why does God justify the wicked? It's in chapter 4 and verse 25, the very end of the chapter. He, that is Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life. For our justification. Did you notice the little word was? A very important word here. The little word was. He was delivered over to death for our sins. In English we call this a passive statement. Jesus is not the subject. God is the subject ultimately because God delivers Jesus over to death. God is the active one in that statement, not Jesus. Jesus was delivered over by somebody, and the somebody was God himself. God took our sins and put those sins on Jesus. Now if you're explaining this to a Chinese person, it's very easy. Because in the Chinese language, there is a character that they have for righteousness. And what's the character for righteousness? It's a complicated character. I checked with my pen friend in... in um, he lives in Kuching in Malaysia. And he, he's just despised telling me. He said, how could you not know? You can look it up on the internet. But I was checking with somebody that I knew because I'd read it in a sermon and I thought, well, that might not be right. And I was going to be preaching in a Chinese church and I knew that I'd have to have it right. The Chinese character is a lamb over the personal pronoun me or the personal pronoun I. So if you're righteous, you have the Lamb of God over yourself. All that Jesus has done is over you. Your sins are covered. Everything about you, the Lord Jesus has taken. All the sin that you have committed, he has paid for. He's taken the Lamb, is over you over the personal pronoun, me. Remember what we were singing this morning? For me, for me, just for me. It's for me. It's all been done. God took our sins and put those sins on Jesus. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. Why did this happen? I still haven't told you. Jesus was handed over by God's foreknowledge in Acts 2 and verse 23. It was wicked men that did so, wicked men that crucified Jesus, but Acts 2 verse 23, Jesus was handed over by God's foreknowledge. But my question is still not answered. Why did God justify the wicked? Why does he justify Abraham and David and people in this room? You have to go to the next chapter to see it spelled out clearly. It's in Romans 5 and verse 8. Romans 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So behind all that happens at the cross, at Jesus' death, is the love of of God when you want to measure the love of God you look at the cross that death was a death of shame and insult God's giving doesn't stop just at the sending of his son into the world it includes giving him over to death but let me take you a step further consider the characters character of the people to whom God sent his son to the cross. What kind of people were they? Well, you read about Abraham. He was a liar. And he didn't just lie once. He lied about his wife twice. That's some of the things we know about him. What about David? He was a very wicked man. A lot more wicked than the woman that carried that guilt for 40 years around with her. If Jesus' death had been for good and loving people, it would have been wonderful. But it was not for good people. Here we're told something about ourselves. Verse 8, we are sinners. And verse 6, we are ungodly and we're powerless. And I hate to think of it, but verse 10 says we're God's enemies in chapter 5. That's the kind of people that God shows his love for. But how does he show his love? It is wondrous. I haven't read you all verse 25 very often, have yet? He was delivered over to death for our sins, but was raised to life for our justification. How does God justify the wicked? God reassures you of his love when he delivers his son over to death. Yes, yes, yes. But there is more. Why does God justify the wicked? It is to guarantee Jesus' victory over every power that will ever be blight your human life the resurrection of Jesus is the climax of the work of your redemption from the slavery of sin and Satan in chapter 3 you find that this is a whole business of redemption getting bought back from slavery slavery to sin slavery to corruption slavery to your own self and what you would naturally do The resurrection of Jesus is the climax of the work of your redemption from the slavery of sin, and behind all sin, Satan. He was raised for the sake of your justification. He was raised with a view to your justification, the best translation. The offer of the gospel is for unbelievers that your sinning can be overcome. Death's power and grip of every human life can be overcome, Hell can be overcome. Satan can be overcome. People in their malice against the gospel can be overcome. You think, oh, that will, once I have people against me, I won't be able to survive. You will be able to survive. Because Jesus has conquered death. And He's conquered death for people that He loves and wants in His family. He's not going to let them go. He's going to look after every predicament. This is the privilege of every believer. Romans 4.24 explains, For us who believe, Romans 4.24, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, Jesus comes forth to be seen, to be spoken with, to eat and drink with. Not a ghost that we learned this week at Kids Club. He's alive from the dead to give you the guarantee that the work of atonement has been fully done. Verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. But it's not only the work of atonement, Jesus declares. He also comes from the dead to give you the guarantee of victory over every power that would ever blight your human life. This means that you have a right standing with God no matter what. Let me say as clearly as I can, especially to young people, teenagers, that there is not a sin, not a temptation, not a power, not a passion that can ever enter your life, But it only comes at the authority of Jesus. He knows what he's doing. He's risen and victorious from the grave. When he came from the dead, Jesus came to his disciples to persuade them that all he had done for them was now going to be a reality in their life and in their experience. Can't you imagine the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples and saying to them, My friends, my victory over sin, my victory over death, my victory over the grave, my victory over hell, my victory over the powers of darkness, my victory over time, my victory over history, my victory over people, my victory over devils. My victory is also yours. I give it to you. You can almost hear his disciples saying, Well, Lord, that means that we have no need to be defeated by anything or anybody. And Jesus will say, exactly. Whatever people do to you, whatever may happen, whatever you may meet. remember, my victory is your victory. Well, as I conclude, we must come back to that woman who had the terrible prison of guilt for most of her life. She's a slave to guilt, isn't she? All those years, how many sleepless nights she must have had. Are you there with her? Struggling, hopelessly, or are you free, truly free? What is it that enslaves you? What is it that you're struggling against so hopelessly? God has defeated death, Romans 4 and verse 17. God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. So when you're praying for yourself, you pray for a, to a God who has defeated death. He calls things that are not as though they were. And when you pray for somebody else, that's what you can pray. God changed things. Call into being what they need. Call into existence exactly what they need. God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. God does impossible things. Yes, God will not only set you free, but he will keep you free. God will see to it that you're put in the right with himself for all time and for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you care about every individual now bowed before you and all the people that they will influence all their lives long. We ask that every one of us may truly know freedom from the guilt of sin because of what you've done for us when you gave your son. You gave him over to death for our trespasses and sins and to clear away the guilt. And Lord Jesus, you were raised for our right standing with your Father so that we're credited with millions of righteousness and that all our sin is forgiven. We exalt you in the presence of your Father knowing that you will keep us, that you'll not only be our brother and friend, but our Redeemer and our victorious Lord. And we worship and praise you in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.